It's great to be back together again, and we do find ourselves in a unique moment in history. And as we kind of are navigating all the different dynamics of the world around us, how important it is for us to recenter ourselves on God's Word afresh today. So thank you for joining me, and if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 24, the chapter in total. Hear now God's Word for us. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a cup, double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measurement of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, 
so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, what a heavy and illustrative text. Thank you that you have given the book of Revelation to us to guide us to infuse our imagination with more robust categories of what is actually taking place, not only now, but until the end. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide us in discernment. You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that it is that you long for us to see and hear, and so be faithful witnesses in the time in which we find ourselves. God, we need you. Lord Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Would you guide us in this moment? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Well, as I was hearing this text, it reminded me <clears throat> of a story. I was about 700 miles away from home. I was at a conference and my phone rings. And it was the middle of the summer. And it was one of those summers here in KC where the temperature was in the triple digits. And Allie, she called me and she said, hey, the AC is out. I think it's finally died. Now, we had just bought this house a couple years ago, and so we were in the process of renovation. And frankly, it didn't matter what else was happening at the conference. All I could do was think about Allie and the kids, you know, and in a couple milliseconds, a million questions went through my mind. You know, I began asking, what can I do? Well, who do I call? Should I go home? How can I go home? Is there a flight leaving anytime soon? Is that actually going to help? And if I don't go home, where is Allie and the kids? Where are Allie and the kids going to go to be cool and not melt in this Kansas City summer heat? And on top of that, I couldn't help but ask, well, how am I going to pay for all of this? You see, when you can't pay to fix a problem, it doesn't feel much like a problem. It feels like a crisis. And when you can't actually pay to fix it, but you know you have to, there are a few things that can make you feel more trapped and more vulnerable than that. Now, praise God, we were able to get a really great deal and someone was able to squeeze us in pretty quickly in order to provide some cool air. It took three days. I remember this, three days to cool down our house with the AC unit, new one, running full blast. It got so hot in our house. But God provided and it was very meaningful. But just thinking about my family melting during this conference, not knowing how to pay for this was awful. And who here likes to feel vulnerable? I know I don't like to feel vulnerable. Rather, we all want to feel secure, don't we? Security is the feeling that no matter what comes, something or someone has you. Security has a sense of freedom to it, existentially, psychologically. It's a sense of peace. Security is kind of having a backup plan. To feel secure, in a sense, is to feel okay. It's the feeling that I am okay, and the people I love are okay. And no matter what images come to your mind or how you describe it, at the end of the day, feeling secure is feeling that you are okay. And for that feeling, 
will do almost anything. And that's the rub. You see, some of our greatest battles in life are when what promises security actually requires moral compromise. And this, of course, is the language of idolatry that we see strewn throughout the pages of Scripture. All throughout history, human beings hunger, thirst, desire, long ache to feel okay, to feel secure. And sometimes we'll trust just about anything other than Jesus in order to experience that reality. And when we do that, we're not the only ones who end up paying for it in the end. You see, today we're going to lean into one of the biggest areas where we actually go looking for security, and simultaneously one of the greatest avenues of moral compromise, and that's the realm of economics. You see, our day currently is just still a series of financial exchanges for security. From our food, to our clothes, to our sense of self through fashion, our homes, our toys, our neighborhood amenities, our neighbors, all of it is touched by economics. And what do we want nearly more than anything when it comes to economics? Financial security. And there's a lot of good there, right? We are trained within Scripture to be avid savers, to be good um, stewards of the resources that we've been given, and to avoid debt as much as possible. Jesus and the whole Scriptures point to the wise and just usage of finances. And yet what we see here in the book of Revelation is that financial security is not enough. Being wise with resources is important, but that's not ultimately what Revelation is seeking to uncover. Because interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, it's those followers of Jesus who were the most financially secure who were actually the most at risk. And when you look at the landscape of the world, even in its turmoil, for followers of Jesus in the U.S., this is news for us. And, and I mean this. Listen, this isn't news for you, and I'm here telling you about this. This is news for us. This has always been a constant struggle in my own life. I grew up with a single parent in a single parent household. And in one way, like I, I have empathy towards those who struggle to pay their bills, but in another sense, I am lured by the promises of financial security so that I don't return to the pains and the wounds of my childhood. The lie that if I just have enough money, I'll feel okay. Man, it, it digs deep into my heart. So this is a really, really personal message for me, just to be very clear. And it, and it pulls on every part of who I am. So many times I was told that the dream is just to be secure financially. That finally, if I got my family there, that if when I grew up and I finally got us there, then we will have arrived. But that's not the sum total of following Jesus. And frankly... It's not the avenue to find true security either. Let's see how. If you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. And here we see an extraordinary character that's actually all throughout the book of Revelation. We've avoided talking about her to some degree because we are waiting for this moment. In chapter 18, verse 2, we read this extraordinary declaration that fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, who is Babylon? This is a biblical metaphor. It's bigger than any just one city. And yet, that very first city that we see all the way back in Genesis, we see a Tower of Babel, a city that's defined by independence, an ethos seeking to construct a name and a value apart from God. And it's echoed all throughout the scriptures, also seen in Babylon the Great, the ancient foe of the nation of Israel. 
and it represents an alternative cultural definition of the good life. And what we see in the first century is that it's also realized and reminisced within the nation or the broader Roman Empire. And so what we see is this brilliant Babylon the Great coming with great economic vitality. And Babylon, it lures you in like a seductive prostitute. That is the imagery that John uses to portray this deep seduction. Even John in chapter 17, verses 3 through 6, as, he's being, as, as the prostitute is being described, catches himself marveling, and the angel is asking John, what are you marveling at? Because from the outside, this glorious empire looks extraordinarily beautiful. Her wealth is so seductive. You look at chapter 18, verse 3. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Chapter 18, verse 7. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. Chapter 18, verse 19. All who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. There's extraordinary wealth creation happening here. And yet, and yet, it's just an imitation of true security. It's an imitation because in chapter 17, verse 1, when Babylon is introduced, this great city, it mirrors the same way that the new Jerusalem is introduced in chapters 21, verse 9. It's meant to be a new Jerusalem copycat. Just like the evil one tries to masquerade as the true Christ, but fails, this economic powerhouse is trying to be like the new Jerusalem, but it's distorted, wicked, and destructive. And she has complete confidence that she'll never fail. In verse 7, this economy describes and proclaims, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And so she whispers to all of her merchants and those who engage in her economy, embrace my values, play by my rules, and you'll never need anything again. I'll offer you security and luxury. If you'll trust me, you'll be okay. And here's the deal. This was so fascinating. For a while, you might be okay. But there's a catch. You see, this is where we need to remember what Revelation does. Revelation reveals. It is a prophetic apocalypse that's not exclusive re exclusively revealing the end of the world, but revealing the world as it is until the end. Much like, actually, our current exhibit in the four-chapter gallery that leans into psychedelic culture that has this deep desire to look at what is real, to pursue the truth. Revelation is pulling back the curtain and inviting us to see an economy that looks wealthy from the outside but is rotten to the core. You see, there's an extraordinary cost to the wealth of the great Babylon. Underneath the disguise of wealth, God shows us who pays for the wealth of Babylon. Look with me again at chapter 18, verses 11 through 13. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, all these wonderful things. And then the final one, and slaves, that is human souls. Here's how Richard Bauckham, one particular New Testament scholar, clarifies what's happening here. 
He says, John is pointing out that slaves are not mere animal carcasses to be bought and sold as property, but are human beings. That's the first paradigm shift that the gospel brings to an oppressive system like Babylon the Great. But in this emphatic position at the end of the list, this is more than just a comment on the slave trade. It is a comment on the whole list of cargoes. It suggests the inhumane brutality, the contempt for human life on which the whole of Romans' prosperity and luxury rests. All the promises of financial security and luxury come out of the oppression of many vulnerable folks. And God hates this, hates this economic destruction. He views this kind of chasing after wealth like this. Financial security at all costs is adultery. It's like sleeping with a prostitute. It dehumanizes some and gives cheap fulfillment for another. I mean, when you think of the top moral issues of our day today, does economic injustice even reach the top five? It does so for God. It's extraordinarily explicit here in Revelation, if we have the eyes to see. Now, I can hear some folks saying, okay, Gabe, um, so are you saying it's evil to have money? No, I'm not saying that at all. To be clear, wealth isn't evil. There is a good to affluence, and good work can come out of affluence. For example, you look in the book of Acts. Lydia, seller of purple, she leverages her wealth for the broader movement of redemption and the mission of God. And some of you may be thinking, okay, but it still sounds like you're talking about greed, not financial security. Good point. And let me say this. For starters, the unique aspect of greed over against some of the other vices we may have in our lives is that rarely does one who is greedy feel greedy. Rather, the one who is greedy feels like they need what they have accumulated in order to what? Be okay. Financial security, this is the other component, isn't a set number. Every single one of us, engaging the text today, if every one of us made $100,000, we may think that we would then be financially secure. But financial security moves with our category of enough. And who defines our category of enough? You do. Our culture does. What your neighbors just bought, the surrounding neighborhood in which you live, commercials, and all of this constant cultivation of desire and want. Such that financial security in a wealthy suburb in the United States is significantly higher in dollar amount than, say, a rural town in Mexico. And so each of us is seduced into wanting more, and we justify more by calling it just enough. And as the line keeps moving, we sacrifice human beings for our culturally defined security. And the hidden oppression is everywhere. You can think back to the original prosperity of the United States and how it was made possible by the dehumanization of African-American slaves or forcing indigenous peoples off their land, which is a massive element to wealth creation. We can think about our current prison system, how it's monetized and has been leveraged throughout history of this country, landing an exorbitantly higher number of black and brown folks who are often imprisoned for petty, petty crimes or more recently, mandatory minimums for minuscule crimes and so act as free labor empowered by a small clause in the 13th Amendment which says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment of crime. 
We could talk about the mass consumption of pornography and how it has become the backbone and the infrastructure of sex trafficking, or abortion as a massive economic engine of death with Planned Parenthood making loads off the death of children. Not to mention child labor and obscene conditions in factories around the world so that we can attire ourselves with fast fashion. It's so seductive. It's so hidden. Out of sight and out of mind. And listen, there are a lot of really good things happening in the world. The level in which poverty is being extinguished around the world is pretty astounding simultaneously. But so much of our world is still based on and driven by oppression. And we get drawn in and we get seduced. And this isn't new, to be clear. I mean, we could do a quick case study on one particular church in Revelation, the church of Laodicea, and how they were seduced by this type of security. You see, John is writing specifically with them in mind here in Revelation 18. The pool of financial security was powerful for them. These Christians were actually pretty well off. They had money in the bank. They were considered wealthy. And this is what Jesus says to them in chapter 3, verse 17 of Revelation. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, they thought they were rich. They thought they were financially secure when God says you're actually poor and you're wretched. Why? Because they were compromising on their faith and biblical morals to maintain a lifestyle of comfort in the short term. They were trusting Babylon, a world void of God and his ethics in order to feel okay, to feel secure. And what's God's call to them? Chapter 3, verse 19, be zealous and repent, repent. You see, the final image that John leaves with them in Revelation chapter 3 is of Jesus being excluded from their lives, begging to be invited back in before it's too late. And frankly, for so many of us, this is our story. We want financial security at all costs, but we may find that we're in bed with an idol. So what do we do? Look with me here at Revelation chapter 18, verses four and five. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. So what can we do? Here's our action. Be willing to walk away. Following and trusting in Jesus will cost us certain comforts in this life. Whether we uphold Jesus' view on human dignity and the fact that everyone is made in the image of God and so should be afforded certain respect and also in their working conditions, this will limit our consumption from certain companies. Whether we hold fast to radical generosity, giving to those in need while also working hard ourselves. Whether we give a tithe offering out of our first fruits rather than what's left over. All of this and more is economics. And the reason we often can't follow Jesus in these ways is because we've bought into the culture's definition of a particular mark for financial security. We need a new standard. In reality, we need an old standard. And that's why I believe the discipline of simplicity is one of the most helpful here. The discipline of simplicity. Now to be clear, simplicity isn't looking at possessions as evil. You don't have to go live in a tiny house and have like nothing underneath your name in order to own and be practicing simplicity. Rather, it's more not letting what you own possess you. And simplicity has always been an avenue of freedom for the Christian and the broader entanglements of the world. 
Simplicity is what the Apostle Paul was describing in Philippians chapter 3 when he knew what it meant to be content, when plenty or in want. And this is where this passage comes clear. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Simplicity, it's not legalism or even asceticism. Simplicity, as Richard Foster brilliantly puts it, directly affronts our vested interest in an affluent lifestyle. It's being willing to walk away from anything that contradicts Jesus' kingdom agenda, to walk away from that extra shirt when you've already got five at home that fit perfectly well, to walk away from the furniture manufacturer when you discover the company has practices that lack creation care or dehumanize its workers, to walk away from that extra cup of coffee when you realize that you feel the hooks of addiction rather than the unencumbered delight. Rather than a new legalism, you see, simplicity, it requires prayerful discernment and a surrounding community, which is why I'm so grateful to be engaged and made to flourish as one of the city network leaders here in Kansas City. This upcoming Thursday is our Common Good 2020 conference, where we seek to bring clarity to faithfulness as the follower of Jesus on Monday in a growing complex world. I hope you can join us. But today, I wanna to give us a challenge. If you look back and find that you struggle to walk away from anything in your life, that's probably a good sign that everything is holding on to you. And so instead, I want to invite you to take this challenge this next week. What if you walked away from something this week? One purchase, one area of consumption. What if you walked away from something, one thing this next week? One purchase you don't really need, and so walk by or close the browser. Do a little research in the company where you buy your coffee. Do their ethics and practices resemble Jesus' kingdom values? Reevaluate what is necessary for your financial security. I mean, whose values does your framework for financial security represent? The culture or Christ? You see, simplicity is a discipline, which means a little bit of pain and training for more spirit-empowered freedom. And I know so many of you are already really thoughtful in this, to be clear. I've had many conversations, and I'm so proud of you as a campus. And yet, I still want to challenge every single one of us. I'm challenging even myself. And we as a family have been going through our clothes, thinking about how we can simplify and donate to Adelante Thrift. What if you walked away from something this week? One thing. Why do this? Two reasons. Number one, Babylon won't last. It promises security but it's not secure. It writes checks that it can't cash. And frankly, if we go looking for our security there, we may share her fate. If you look again at Revelation chapter 18, verse four, it's clear. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her plagues. John is writing to those seven churches in Asia Minor, and he's calling them to actually relinquish their complicity in these particular systems, or they might share in a corporate sense the fate of Babylon. You see, this and many other texts in the New Testament are clear. Nations and institutions as corporate entities can stand under judgment. And unless we relinquish our complicity in them and declare them wrong, we may share in their judgments. So that's one reason. Babylon won't last. It's a false security. But more than that, nothing, nothing can take away the splendor Jesus gives. You see, at the end of the day, our security cannot be exhaustively found in financial markets, the clothes we wear, the retirement nest egg that we've been putting away. Those may fall and they may fail. 
but we put our security in a person, Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. It may cost us splendor now, but there is splendor and trusting in Jesus that this world cannot touch. Actually, there's a fascinating wordplay that you almost cannot notice unless you understand the Greek behind our English translation. If you look at chapter 18, verse 14, there is this great cry that the splendor is lost and will never be found again that these merchants had once experienced. But when you get to chapter 19, verse 8, the fine linens of those who relinquish this oppressive offerings of Babylon and trust in Christ are described by the same word. They have a splendor that this world cannot offer and their fine white garments provided by Christ. You see, nothing can take away the splendor Jesus gives. What he has won for us on the cross, if we'll put our trust in him, we have a beautiful inheritance that is anchored in him. He is our security. Even when the rest of the world looks at his people as poor, as vulnerable, as weak, as too compassionate, as suffering fools, nothing can take away the splendor that Jesus gives. And that is true security. This is our calling. It's always a cross, a wooden, simple cross. This is what Jesus offers in the gospel, life through death. And it shapes where we get our security and therefore how we live out our economics. May God help us in these days and the days ahead to be a people of faith and shrewdness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are eternally secure that you have accomplished that security for us in the immovable life, death, and resurrection of, jo of Jesus that you have done within history and that you've accomplished for our benefit and your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would give us discernment, that you would open up deep relationships of trust so that we can invite others in to look over our shoulders to ensure that the hooks of greed, seduced and even disguised as the language of financial security, are not woven deep within the heartstrings of our very faithfulness. Guide us, Lord, that we might be more confessing and repenting in our engagement with faulty economics and our own desire to consumption, luxury, and greed. We need you, God. As we pursue justice, may it shape our spending habits. As we seek to live out faithfulness, may it look in a certain way in our bank accounts. And may we find ultimately our security in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. And so now we turn and we refocus our hope in a meal yet to come, actually. A meal here at the Lord's Supper where anyone who comes is allowed to eat having not earned their meal. Everyone is welcome to come to receive out of God's abundant grace. And it is a meal that nourishes us so that we can now go and do likewise to all who come along the way with a radical economics of surplus, securely anchored in the finished work of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have these elements available to you, I'd encourage you to gather them together and gather friends and family and do so and partake in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. But before we partake, let's remember what has been handed down to us in the riches of Scripture. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, taste and see that the Lord is good and his grace is rich.